this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. You can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. You must not tell anyone, my mother said, what I am about to tell you. In China, your father had a sister who killed herself. She jumped into the family well. We say that your father has all brothers because it is as if she had never been born. These are the opening words of Maxine Hong Kingston's 1975 novel, The Woman Warrior, Memoirs of a Childhood Among Ghosts. It was a book that opened me up in a way that few other books had done. I read it outside of class, long after I'd graduated from college and graduate school, and couldn't really put it down. I speak with Ava Chin today, who is the author of Eating Wildly, Foraging for Life, Love, and the Perfect Meal, and who teaches at the CUNY schools in New York City. She's widely published and has talked a lot about different issues related to our challenge how to sustain ourselves in this modern urban country. Eating Wildly is a book about foraging. But here we focused on Kingston as a book that gave a voice to experiences that hadn't really found expression in the American canon. Woman Warrior is haunting, poignant, deeply moving, and troubling, as Ava explains. So, first of all, Ava, thank you for joining me on Think About It. Oh, absolute pleasure. So... I'm thrilled to talk about Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior, Memoirs of a Girlhood Among Ghosts. When I read this book for the first time, probably 20 years ago, it was with a student who had asked to read it. I had never been assigned this book when I was in college or graduate school oh. in America. Oh. I went to some decent schools. <laughs> 
And this book really touched me. It sort of opened up something and I thought it was one of those rare works of literature where literature and the capacity to write imaginatively intersects directly with freedom, with sort of one's inner freedom. So I really am so happy to have you here. So if you can just dive right in, you've been teaching The Woman Warrior, you've probably been thinking about it for, I don't know, for how long. We have the same copy of the book here. It was first, first published <laughs> right. in 1975. It's probably 1976. 76, is that right? Yes. And so, so we have these editions here, these old vintage editions, 75. Oh, uh, right. There's the copyright 75, but okay. So, right. Okay. So I also love this book. This is the kind of book that I return to every five years or so. There are maybe three books that I read every five years or so. One of them is Middlemarch, George Eliot's Middlemarch. The other one is Melville's Moby Dick. Oh, really? And the third is Woman Warrior. I read it when I was an undergraduate as an English major at Queens College. It was maybe about 20 years after the book was published. Is that right? No, 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 it wasn't. I read it in the 80s. Oh, they're 10 years after. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I reread it again in the 90s and then again, you know, in the 2000s. So I love the book. Every time I read it, I see something new and something different. But we should talk about... let Let me just talk to you about the background of the book. All right, so published in 1975. She wrote it in a period where we're already in the post-civil rights era. It is during the height of the women's movement, so you have all the excitement of the 1970s feminism. And there was also a greater awareness of that time of multicultural perspectives, various ethnicities, and this was making its way into academia as well. So all of these things are happening at once, and I think it was the perfect timing for a book like Woman Warrior to come about. It did win the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her follow-up, China Men, which is sort of like a companion text to Woman Warrior, that won the National Book Award. I've seen references to it as the most widely read book of a living contemporary U.S. author in college and university campuses across the country. And I think that it has never faded in its popularity. Partially, well, because of the fact that the core subjects are still so relevant today. Women's role in society, whether that's American society, Chinese society, the tensions between mothers and daughters, and the immigrant experience. It may be part of it also, the relation between fiction and reality. Yeah. Because the book is so powerful because it has this kind of talk story or these kind of mythic, these fables, these fairy tales, and then it has the real memoir part of just a girl growing up in America. And it's this doesn't go away whether we imagine right. our world or whether the world is what we're given. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, it is a paradigm shift in terms of what we think of as nonfiction literature and what nonfiction literature can be. You've got that mix of mythology personal story, talk story, family secrets, immigration stories, and it's all wrapped up together and told from an utterly Chinese-American point of view. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so great. The other thing is that it really revolutionized the idea of what an autobiography can be. 
When it came out in the 1970s, you and I both have the same early paperback version of the book. It was considered an autobiography, right? Right. It says on the back, it's not fiction. Right. right. It's autobiography. autobiography. Then fast forward to 1989, same publisher lists it as, what do you see there? Fiction slash literature. Right. So it moved from autobiography to the more... I guess it's the more august realm of imaginative fiction or right, right. <laughs> more and, saleable. And then at some point, I've seen copies that list it as memoir. So it's all of these things and sort of maybe it's maybe it's all of these things combined. I've seen it referenced as a book without a genre. And I think that we should come back to this point in a moment because there's something about this book and where it sits in terms of the genres that speaks to what was actually happening in the author's life and her family life that has to do with the immigrant experience but maybe we should should we touch mm-hmm. on that afterwards? well let's go first sort of how it's laid out as a book it's yes. in five parts and it's right. not a traditional way of laying out a book in chapters that start from even if it was called a memoir from childhood i was born here grew up became right. that Right. It's not a straightforward linear narrative. It's written in five interwoven, interconnected sections that deal with both the narrator growing up in California, as well as what her family's life was like back in China, as well as what their family life is like as laundry people, right? Folks who own laundry out on the West Coast. So I'm going to sort of talk about, maybe we can talk about like three different sections of the book. Sure. The first one is the no-name woman. And this is a story about an aunt who gives birth. She's married, so it's not she gives birth out of wedlock. She gives birth to another man's child. The aunt is then ostracized by the village and the society. But what's worse than being ostracized by the other villagers is the self-imposed shame that the family places upon the aunt. This shame is so deeply embedded that the story follows the family into the United States and it reaches the ears of the narrator, right, Maxine Hunkingston's narrator, in the form of a cautionary tale, as if don't let this happen to you. In fact, the mother even says the villagers are watching, right, even though they're in, in California. The narrator ultimately refuses to participate in this kind of shaming of the aunt, and what she does is completely breathes life into her character and gives different possibilities for the way that the ant is. It's, it's like a marvelous sort of reimagining, right? So she's been given a story at the same time that this book starts very famously, you must not tell anyone, my mother said, what I'm about to tell you. Right. And she kind of disregards this warning, this taboo, because the mother says it's a shameful story in our family that we don't even speak about. And I think it touches on what you said earlier between mothers and daughters, there's something I'm going to reveal to you at the moment when you're coming of age, but mm-hmm. you must never tell anyone. Right. And then the narrator <laughs> decides to tell the story and right. what you said, make it actually a real story. Make yes. and imagine parts that she would not have known that no one ever remembered because no one knew 
what happened to this woman really. Right. And in fact, there's so much shame associated with the aunt that the narrator doesn't even know her actual name, right? And so it, it is kind of revolutionary that she claims the narrative of this aunt. And instead of listening to the mother and like, don't tell anybody about this story, she proceeds to tell the world. <laughs> <laughs> My aunt haunts me, her ghost drawn to me because now, after 50 years of neglect, I alone devote pages of paper to her, though not origamied into houses and clothes. I do not think she always means me well. I am telling on her, and she was a spite suicide, drowning herself in the drinking water. The Chinese are always very frightened of the drowned one, whose weeping ghost, wet hair hanging and skin bloated, waits silently by the water to pull down a substitute. The end of this section, she also says, the no-name aunt wasn't always nice to me. She wasn't a kind spirit necessarily. She was kind of haunting her too. Right, right. And in fact, I think one of the most incredible thing about the ending of that section is really, is it's part of the mechanics of the story. So what the narrator knows is that the aunt throws, here's the spoiler alert, throws herself and her baby into the well, right? Not that long ago, I went to China. I'm from a similar area in China as Maxine Hawkinson's family. So what part of China is so this? So this is the southern part of China in Guang, uh, Guangzhou, hmm. in the Guangdong province. I'm from Toisan, and I'm pretty sure she's also from Toisan. All the old school Chinese Americans are from that region. And I visited those villages. And each of those villages, the central part of the village is the well. Right. And so the amazing thing about this suicide, and I wouldn't go as far as to say it's an empowered suicide. Right. But the amazing thing about the suicide is that she chooses to throw her body and the body of her child into the drinking well of the village. And what that means is that every person in the village, including the family who shames her, has to think about her every time they go to that well to get their drinking water mm-hmm. daily, mm-hmm. right? So, so yeah, the narrator of the book is haunted, right, by this story and doesn't want to perpetuate this kind of shame. And she's sort of suggesting what you're saying, the mechanics of the story are in the back there, that this way of remembering somebody redeems some part of it. It redeems this kind of double burial that she was once shamed and driven to suicide, presumably, and then forgotten in her death and not named. And she has no name. So at least she can try to reconstruct this. So there's an effort that the burden falls on the daughter to remember her forefather's kind of Mm -hmm. crime or sins Mm -hmm. or injustice. And Mm -hmm. she still experiences it. It still haunts her. Mm -hmm. And I think Maxine Hawkinson hadn't been to China at this point, but she wrote the book. She had never visited That's right. I think the closest she had been was Hawaii, where she was living at the time, writing the book. (laughs) But the thing that I always think about, because I also taught 
Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own maybe a week before I recently taught this book. I was thinking about how Virginia Woolf creates the character of Judas Shakespeare, right? right? And it feels very similar to me in that Kingston is also sort of breathing life into this character of someone she didn't know, but she knows the bare bones of her story. And she's using the character as a way to tell us about women's lived experiences during that period of time when there are no records of it, right? right? So it is a kind of reclamation of women's stories in the past. And you can see why, you know, in the 1970s, during the height of the women's movement, readers would have flocked to this book. And as you're saying, there was no record. Virginia Woolf says, what happened to all the women who all lived lives, had dreams, aspirations, did many things, kept families alive, actually took care of huge communities, but there's no record at all. So it's her task to imagine someone like that. So Shakespeare's right. sister, right. who no one would remember. So the act of imagination is rivals or the same as the level of actual history writing, mm -hmm. that the historian has a role, but then a literary writer or memoirist would have the same role. This is interesting what you talked about Chandra yeah. earlier. It's a different way of telling history, but it rivals the official history, mm -hmm. the, the male history, which only remembers basically what men have done until very recently. Right. Yeah. Let's go to another section. Okay. Uh, so no, no name woman will, will remember how she's staying with us. Right. Actually, she does haunt you after reading this section of the book. Yeah, she does. <laughs> I thought about her every time I visited a well in a village in China. Okay, so let's talk about, just briefly, about the White Tiger section. That is where Maxine Hong Kingston takes the mythology of the woman warrior, Fa Mulan, right? So that's the image. You can think about it as an Eastern equivalent to the Western Joan of Arc. I learned to make my mind large, as the universe is large, so that there is room for paradoxes. Pearls are bone marrow. Pearls come from oysters. The dragon lives in the sky, ocean, marshes, and mountains. And the mountains are also its cranium. Its voice thunders and jingles like copper pans. It breathes fire and water. And sometimes the dragon is one, sometimes many. So a woman who rides out into battle to fame and glory, who eventually does return back to the village changed, but supposedly going back to kind of normal family life, getting married, having kids and that kind of thing. But, you know, what she does in this is really kind of breathtaking. When you first read it, the narrator is talking to us about different kinds of stories, mythology of women in Chinese culture who do heroic deeds, right? And then there's a subtle shift in the narrative where all of a sudden the narrative I becomes the embodiment of the burgeoning woman warrior character. And it's absolutely sort of fantastic. It's like we enter the realm of magical realism, right? This to me was a really exciting part of the book when I first read it. It is a part of the book where it drew some criticism 
from folks. They're like, what is she doing? Like, why is she doing this? How can you take this myth and turn it into yourself? Like, what is that all about? And I have friends who are scholars who grew up in Asia that were completely mystified by this section. <laughs> so I have to confess, I love this section. Yeah. You feel totally transported. Yeah. And you're kind of with her every step of her training when she has to cower next to the deer by the stream and learn how to be quiet and learn how to be fast. And right. it's, it's like a kind of Kung Fu fantasy from the West. And I wonder whether people right. in China would think, what are you doing with this story, which has nothing to do with anybody? <laughs> right. But, and Maxine, Han Kingston said once, this is also Kung Fu movies because she would watch them on the weekends right. at the temple, like <laughs> many American children. Oh, yeah. And watch Kung Fu movies, people yeah. just leap into the air, you know, 100 feet high, or right. I can survey the world. And, right. And there's a section in there with the, the parents who are kind of imposing this story on the girl's back. Can you say something about it when they inscribe the... The revenge part. Right. So she comes to her parents to visit her parents. She's now an esteemed warrior already. And they write all of their grievances. They carve it with a knife into her back. Right. And they said, even when you're dead, you will be a weapon. Right. Because you will register our grievances and our complaints. And because she's gone through the superhuman training, she can endure this, that her back becomes the message for this grandiose kind of claim of being wronged by the peasants of China. Uh-huh. And I always thought, and then in the end, somehow she goes to what I guess is something like Beijing, beheads the emperor, puts a peasant in charge, and the peasants <laughs> are united, and there's some weird sort of pre-cultural revolution. It's also, no, it's completely <laughs> right. fantastical. Right. And it's all sort of jumbled together. Yeah. And what's great about it is that it's touching upon certain things in history but it's all done in a very creative way. So it has historical touchstones throughout it. But when you're reading it, it's not as if you feel like you're reading a history book, right? It's just embedded within the actual narrative and the character. And it has this energy of an adolescent, of someone becoming. It's not a person, but it's someone becoming something else, this transformation. So it's an incredible story of transformation. Right. And you know that part of it is just imagining to be powerful. So I think it foreshadows a bit the other sections of the book where she's a teenager or a young girl. And in this one here, she just gets trained to be this superhuman warrior who can disguise as a man, lead armies into battle, give birth on one day off from battle. (laughs) And it's this incredible story of a woman who has all these powers and I think because it's so fantastical, it's a bit like Moby Dick, which is so overwritten in these mm-hmm. in some passages, mm-hmm. to show that you can imagine this kind of power and that already is part of it. Right, right. It's funny because I think that at some point the book was even discussed as adolescent literature or young, like that the publishers discussed whether or not this should be young. And, and it was only because the narrator seems like an adolescent is at that point in time where she has all of that youthful potential, right? The potential to behead an emperor, the potential to lead an army, the potential to even combat the misogyny that exists within the patriarchal Chinese culture, right? Right. And I think this connection of an adolescent coming into herself, gaining her voice, speaking in her own voice... I actually think there's something about whether it's Twilight, The Hunger Games, mm. The Hate You Give, these young adult novels, mm-hmm. which are about women 
having to make a choice whether to speak up for themselves. Right. It has this energy. It's a thrill ride. That section of the book is sort of, as you said, it's so fantastical and incredible. I just thought it was sort of, it's very gripping. Yeah. Okay, so then, let's see. I was going to, let's talk about Song for a Barbarian Repipe, shall we? That section... Which is the final It's the section. final section. It's, and the other sections are good, too. There's two sections in between, which is about her mother and her mother's sister. Right. Her mother back in China having this remarkable life as a doctor and her mother's sister being brought to America to confront the husband who Has, kind of got away. Right. The husband who got away who remarries a Chinese-American wife right. in California. And the Chinese wife coming from China is supposed to get him back, but he rejects her. Right. So these two stories are sort of her mother and her mother's aunt in two versions of whether to be successful or not in America. Right, right. right yeah. And then we'll go to the last section. So we're just jumping to Song for Barbarian Repipe. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I stopped abruptly in front of the sinks, and she came running toward me before she could stop herself, so that she almost collided with me. I walked closer. She backed away. Puzzlement, then alarm in her eyes. You're going to talk, I said, my voice steady and normal, as it is when talking to the familiar, the weak, and the small. I am going to make you talk, you sissy girl. She stopped backing away and stood fixed. I looked into her face so I could hate it close up. She wore black bangs and her cheeks were pink and white. She was baby soft. I thought that I could put my thumb on her nose and push it bonelessly in and dent her face. I could poke dimples into her cheeks. I could work her face around like dough. She stood still and I did not want to look at her face anymore. I hated fragility. I walked around her, looked her up and down the way the Mexican and Negro girls did when they fought so tough. I hated her weak neck. The way it did not support her head, but let it droop, her head would fall backward. In the section, the narrator is still school-aged, and there's a moment where the narrator torments another girl. And this is a girl in school who is the girl who's most like her. Right. This is the kind of they're both girls who get picked last in the sports teams. They both have a difficult time finding their voices in these American classrooms. Right. And the narrator torments this girl in the bathroom. She corners her in the bathroom and she proceeds to torture her. And it's such a raw portrayal of self-hatred, internalized racism. And the section is relentless 
Do you remember this section? Yes. The torture goes on yes. and on and on and on. They're standing on. in this kind of very large kind of bathroom sort of laboratory in this school after hours. It's in the afternoon. She's, yes. The woman is girl's anxious to not get home, but she wants to make this girl speak. Right. And the girl is the most passive non-obtrusive no one gets bothered by her she's never actually she there's no reason to pick on her except that she looks weak yeah and then she somehow has but, this mo yeah she looks weak but she's the most like the narrator yes. herself yes. and then and she i think that's what's important right because she's also not weak she refuses to be then bullied into speaking which is very strange because this book is about coming into language but there she's right. tormented and, it, right. and it's the scene seems to go on for hours. Yes. Hours. <laughs> yeah. It's probably, in the real time of the novel, it's probably 15 minutes, but somehow in the right. reading, it's a few pages, yeah. but it seems it's, excruciating. It is, yeah, it's incredibly uncomfortable reading it. Yeah. And the narrator herself grows incredibly uncomfortable with this role that she has of tormentor. And at some point, she says... Just say something. Just say stop. <laughs> Just tell me to stop already uh, so that she actually can stop. But the other girl refuses to say a word. And the only time in which it does stop is when the older sisters finally come. Right? Do you remember that? Yes. They come. They both have two sisters. So each of the girls has, has an older sister. sister. Right. And then the narrator has to kind of pretend that she wasn't torturing her. It really is, I'll say it again, one of the most searing portrayals of self-hatred and internalized racism. You know, I ask my students, you know, is this a case, just a simple case of bullying, right? And they all recognize that it's something much, much deeper at work. It's important that this girl is just like the narrator. And it's important that because it shows how the narrator is herself trying to find her own voice. And she's demanding that the other girl speak, but the other girl blatantly refuses to. By turning it into the scene of abuse and trauma, it's that coming into your own voice is not an easy, smooth, sort of empowering decision. I right. think the book showing it's a painful decision and it has to break with certain things. In mm -hmm. the very beginning of the book, it breaks with her mother's kind of interdiction to say, do not repeat the story. It'll repeat or continue the shame of our family. She says, I'm going to do exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. Then there's another, in the same section here, the last section, she has a list of things she wants to confess to right. her mother that she has wrong. <laughs> Over 200 things. Right. And then... The mother says, why are you bothering me at this moment here at the end of the day in the laundry? Just stop it. And then she gets so frustrated. She bursts out with the most random things that accumulated over the years. But, right. but to find one's voice is not an easy process. It's not as simple one. We would say, oh, just speak up. Tell us what you think. Right. Because that girl never says it. She never says a word. Yeah, she never says a word. The narrator, there is some, she says, divine justice because the narrator then spends the next year and a half in bed like a Victorian recluse staring out at the peach tree, watching the peach tree out the window change form, right? It's only until afterwards she goes back to school, right? right, right. What you're saying is really interesting because it goes back to the woman warrior section, the white tiger section. It's almost as if you have to go through the trials of a warrior, right? Learning how to survive through cold, starvation, 
finding your own food, finding water, being brave. You have to go through all of those different levels in order to ultimately find your own voice. And what's interesting, that makes me think of the other section about Moon Orchid, there's this section where the aunt comes from from China. Her sister wants her to confront the husband, who is really not recognizing her, although he paid for her. And she also wants to force her to say something. And there's another scene of a woman forcing her sister to say something. And the aunt from China doesn't speak English. Right. And refuses to even utter a word to her husband, right. who has really abandoned her mm-hmm. in a horrible way, and it's mm-hmm. unjust. Mm-hmm. But she nonetheless won't say it. And I think what Kingston opens up, that speaking out has a cost. Speaking out isn't easy, and that some people will not speak out, but they remain full characters in her book. Mm-hmm. So the book is not a simplistic, oh, it's good for girls to speak. That there's a huge cost. And then the woman, Moon Orchid, who's the aunt, she doesn't speak out. They go to lunch, and it's actually great. And then the brother says, of course, they didn't speak. They're Chinese. They don't speak during lunch at all. So they have this lunch. <laughs> right. The estranged husband, who is horrible. The woman who is totally ashamed that she has to be confronted. Mm-hmm. The sister who's trying to egg her on to say, go in there, push out the second wife, assert your place. And it doesn't work. And then the sad story of Moon Orchid is she actually ends up not being able to assimilate or fit into California. Right. She ends up really kind of going crazy. Going crazy. Yeah, being hearing, senile. Hearing voices, yeah. feeling that she's being persecuted in some ways and living in mental asylum in the end. So I think what's interesting is that she gives us characters who don't gain their voice. And the girl who is bullied, however, actually ends up a reasonable life. Mm-hmm. She's being protected by her older sister. Right. She actually lives on her own because mm-hmm. the narrator was so worried she's never going to make it if she doesn't speak up. I'm going to force her to do so. Right. So that voice and voicelessness are not as simplistic to sort of say having a voice is good, having no voice is bad. Which I was talking to my daughter about this book yesterday and I said... One thing German and Chinese culture really share when you get a compliment in Germany, you're not supposed to say thank you. You're supposed to always say, oh, this is an old sweater or I haven't washed my hair in days or I haven't slept at all. You're never supposed to acknowledge anything because it's not polite. Right. And in some ways, the narrator in this book, The Woman Warrior, gets so frustrated when her mother keeps on saying the opposite of what she wants her to say. Right. And then at the end of the book, the mother once said, but I meant to say these things you didn't understand as Chinese people we don't tell you you look so pretty right that brings on <laughs> bad luck yeah we say the opposite <laughs> you're so dumb you don't even get that you can't tell truth from reality right but this is what we have sort of like the moon wave you know the the bad cliche of the tiger mom like Amy Chua's idea like this is not how it's supposed to work and this book opens it up in a much more creative way right and says your mother tried to say the right thing to you and I think Kingston is trying to work out what am I supposed to believe and what is just right. language. Right. The first moment that I ever felt as a Chinese-American woman writer, the, the time in which I only felt addressed as uh, a Chinese-American was early on in the book when Maxine Hong Kingston says, Chinese-Americans... How do you know, and I'm paraphrasing, how do you know what is actually Chinese and not your crazy family, the movies, right? You know, your particular situation. How do you know what is actually Chinese? And I had never felt addressed in like all my years of reading literature before. And that moment has always stayed with me, you know, that 
she was writing not just for, you know, just a broad American audience, but that she was actually thinking about, you know, an Asian American audience as well. You were going to ask me a question about the American canon. No, actually, I'm I'm going to follow up on what you just said. I'm really interested in this because the book has obviously been so important for so many people. So I am sort of sitting here thinking, why did it speak to me? I'm an immigrant. I'm not from Asia. I don't know a thing about China, really. I lived in China long after I read this book. So there were things I sort of probably grasped and learned much later. But I felt like it didn't open up a new culture to me in this kind of touristic way of like, oh, I can see how these people live. I felt it opened up the fact that all cultures are constructed, that people learn how to navigate them. That they don't know whether it's my crazy family or my wonderful family or it's my culture that does this. When you come to America, you have to learn all these things that Americans, which is all of us, take for granted. Right. But this book shows nothing is to be taken for granted. You learn stories, you learn myths and fairy tales and symbols and ideas and images, and some of them work for you and some of them don't, but you can't really claim they're yours until you've made them your own. So I thought this opened up more an insight into how culture works Mm. and not only specifically of what it means to be, because it wouldn't open up for me how does it feel to be Chinese-American. I don't know. But... There were parts of the book where I connected mm-hmm. to it's not easy to speak out. There's a cost. It's not easy to always stand out or to be heard. I have an accent, for example. So that's the way you can hide certain things. So that to be called out as different. Mm. But that should alert you that there's difference everywhere rather than the other way around. So, I, so for me, if I want to put this book into a category, I would always say it's one of the great American novels As America taking in all these stories, not from somewhere else, but this is an American, sort of making sense of what's American about me. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I mentioned that I read Moby Dick every couple of years. I feel like if you take Woman Warrior and Chinamen together, that there's a way in which together they are like equally as good as Moby Dick in terms of what it tells you about the immigrant experience, Chinese-American experience into the United States. In China Men, she goes back into the 19th century with Chinese immigration laborers coming in, working on the railroad, and later on, laundry workers. There's a way in which both Books. I feel like you have to read both books together. Moby Dick, uh, Chinaman, oh, and Woman Warrior. I mean, I'm sure there are Melville scholars who are like, you know, like bristling at the comparison. But there's a way in which both of them are so, I don't know, they're so encompassing of this kind of richness of the American experience that isn't always addressed and talked about. That I think is really important, particularly now. And, uh, oh, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. And that's with the issue of genre. Remember when we were talking about how, yes. as a book, this changed the ways in which we think about what an autobiography can do, what nonfiction can do. Recently, I would say like maybe about three years ago, Maxine Hong Kingston came out 
and addressed the issue of genre, why this is a book without a genre, or why she had to create her own genre. And she revealed that with the immigration restrictions that were in place when her family was coming over, this is the Chinese Exclusion Act era, because of those hefty restrictions, the quota Before 1943, there actually was no quota for Chinese coming in. There were supposed to be no Chinese people coming in. From 1882, From from 1882 to 1943. Because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, only, like, students could come in and merchants and diplomats. But that was it. So basically, like, a whole segment of the population wasn't allowed legal entry. But what happens when you have something that restrictive, people go underground, right? And they try to subvert the apparatus that's trying to keep them out. And because of that, Kingston couldn't be very explicit about certain facts in her books. So if we look at China Men, there's a section where she talks about the father's immigration into the United States. And she offers two possibilities. One possibility is that he's sitting with an interpreter and, you know, an official from immigration who's interrogating him. And he's answering, like, countless questions to try to prove the authenticity of his identity in order to come and enter the United States legally. That's one possibility. And that's the way a lot of Chinese people did come in. But there's the other possibility that she offers of the father coming in basically smuggled inside of a crate. And he had to stay inside of that crate for X amount of time before he's able, he gets the word that he can come out, right? And that's how he comes in. And she offers both possibilities in books. She doesn't ever say which one is the truth. And it turns out that the reason why she couldn't was because she could have implicated her parents. And family members could have gotten deported. So she had to create her own kind of genre Mm -hmm. in order to tell these immigration stories, in order to tell her own story and the story of her parents. So that's very powerful. So what you're saying is because of the way this country regulated immigration of certain groups, they had to invent other ways of even then living in this country because they were under this continuous suspicion or this threat of deportation. And in the the Woman Warrior, there's this threat of deportation looming behind people. They say, always, you know, behave a certain way because of the... And never tell the truth. Never tell Americans the truth. Do not tell people your real name. Your real name, even. So in some ways, there is something that she's saying. She's sort of decoding or explaining about what the outside sees of Chinese-American culture, saying this is driven by a real existential legal threat of deportation right. and of having been declared illegal for some 60 years in this country. Yes. And I actually think this is really important to say the background is this Chinese Exclusion Act and this racist legislature that mm-hmm. didn't allow people from China or Asia to immigrate to this country for so long. Right. And so I think that this weighs on her but then produces a creative response mm-hmm. that we don't know if it's fiction or not. Right. That actually fiction then serves another purpose. It's not just make believe you want to have a fairy tale story, but actually it is a mode of survival or a mode of living in a kind of powerful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So the next book people should read after the one warrior is China Men and 
Moby Dick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're saying, right? I think that's what I'm advocating, yes. And what's the third book you said? Is Middle March by oh, George Eliot? Oh, yeah, George Eliot's Middle March. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I read The Color Purple every five years. Oh, okay. That's which a good one, too. Yeah. I think it's also fantastically yes. important. Yes. I want to thank you, Ava, for joining me on this conversation on The Woman Warrior. It was an absolute pleasure. And then I will absolutely have you back to talk about Middle March and Moby Dick. Okay, sure. <laughs> thank you so <laughs> thank much. You. Here is a story my mother told me, not when I was young, but recently, when I told her I also talk story. The beginning is hers, the ending mine. In China, my grandmother loved the theater.